Pro bono publico, a Latin phrase meaning for the public good, is most often associated with free legal services lawyers provide to people who need help but cannot afford to pay for it. As a Boston lawyer, I'm proud of the commitment so many lawyers, law firms, and others have made to providing pro bono legal services to people and organizations in need. No Boston lawyer better reflects that commitment than Sue Finnegan, a partner and chair of the pro bono committee of the Mintz Law Firm, a firm with a long and laudable tradition of pro bono service. In this episode of Higher Callings, I asked Sue about the pro bono work she and other Mintz lawyers perform. We also discussed a number of topics about pro bono legal services, including why lawyers and other legal professionals choose to engage in pro bono work, how law firms incentivize their lawyers to take on pro bono cases, how working on pro bono cases provides important training for new lawyers, what Massachusetts has done to provide pro bono opportunities for retired lawyers, and how in-house corporate lawyers and government lawyers work with law firms to staff pro bono cases. I began the interview by asking Sue about a truly extraordinary scene I witnessed during a formal Boston Bar Foundation event on a cold Saturday night during the earliest days of the Trump presidency when she and other pro bono lawyers were suddenly called into action to address an emerging crisis. I'm Don Federico, and this is Higher Callings. Sue Finnegan, good morning. Uh, good morning. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for joining me today. When I think about pro bono lawyers in Boston, you're always the first person to come to mind. Oh, well, thank you. It's nice to, nice to be speaking with you this morning. Yeah, no, I'm really excited about it. And, and um, you and your firm have uh, quite a tradition uh, of pro bono. And, and just to introduce you briefly, uh, you're at Mintz. Mm -hmm. uh, a well-known law firm in Boston, and you are a full-time pro bono lawyer there, uh, mm -hmm. running, uh, well, chairing the pro bono work that Mintz and many of its attorneys do. Mm -hmm. um, so um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that as we go along. I wanted to start out just kind of setting the scene uh, with what was really an extraordinary event that I got to witness a glimpse of um, <laughs> in 2017. And um, so let me let me uh, set the stage and then uh, I'll turn it over to you to talk about what happened at the point where I leave off. So this was at um, the Boston Bar Foundation holds an annual gala called the Adams Benefit, named after John and Abigail Adams. Uh, because this is Boston, after all. And um, at the gala, there's uh, this is the charitable arm of the Boston Bar Association. So the, it raises a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars every year at this one event, uh, which then is part of the money that the foundation distributes to various legal services organizations uh, throughout the Boston area. Uh, that really come to depend uh, in part on the funds that are raised. So it's a it's a black tie event. Men are there in their tuxedos. Women are there in their gowns. Um, there is a VIP event uh, as part of it at the very beginning. Uh, in a room upstairs, there's a gallery with paintings by really famous historical artists. It's really a a wonderful place within the Museum of Fine Arts. I think I left that out. The event is held at the Museum of Fine Arts. It's usually on the coldest day of the winter, mm -hmm. on a Saturday night, um, and it um, it takes place. It it used to take place every year at the end of January, like the last weekend of January. So, in 2017, as usual, my wife and I attended uh, the event. Uh, including that VIP event where there's recognition of uh, a leader in the legal community in pro bono or other charitable legal work. And, you know, there were probably up to 100 lawyers and their partners in that room, um, as is true all the time. And people are milling around, they're enjoying themselves, they're having cocktails, they're having hors d'oeuvres, um, and uh, again, people are dressed to the nines. And all of a sudden, 
uh, at this event in that particular year, I saw a group of lawyers suddenly huddling kind of off to the side and uh, in a very agitated state, like something <laughs> was happening that was had a great deal of urgency. You, I, I believe, I'm quite sure, were one of those lawyers. Um, and then after uh, a lot of animated conversation among that small group, a number of you suddenly left the event. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know where you were going at first. I think I asked somebody, what's happening? Where are you going? And what I learned was that our new president, number 45, had just issued an immediate travel ban for people trying to immigrate from certain countries into the United States. And you all left to go immediately to Logan Airport, where people were coming in from other countries and were being detained because of this travel ban. With no notice, it was just a very sudden thing. Really an extraordinary thing, uh, uh, and of course a disruption uh, for those of you who went. But that's all I knew until I learned more about it later. Tell us what happened that night. Yeah, it was really an extraordinary evening. Um, throughout the day, actually, just to back up a bit, I had been getting phone calls from immigration advocates, uh, in particular Susan Church, who was the president of the immigration bar in New England. And she had highlighted that that most likely there would be something happening at the airport that night that would necessitate people going into court. Uh, and, you know, at the time, I didn't really believe her. You know, it's not something that you think about on a Saturday while you're getting ready to go to an event or you're going on about your business. And she had called several people at the same time. And so I continued on. I didn't really think that anything like that would happen on a Saturday evening. Um, and um, sure enough, she called. I think it was about 8 o'clock at night. She called and said, you have to get over to the airport immediately. Um, that planes are starting to arrive from overseas. And there are two people in particular who are impacted by this Muslim travel ban. And the two people that were impacted were actually um, professors um, at University of Massachusetts. And um, they were impacted and they were detained. And so she said, you have to immediately come over to the airport. So we basically I went over with a group of three people and we dropped everything. And as you said, it was freezing out. I don't know why we thought to not bring our coats, but we thought it was so urgent that we couldn't even wait in line to get our coats or get our car yeah. and just jumped in an Uber over to the airport. Um, and uh, it and was so you showed up in the airport again in your formal clothing. Exactly. Right? And no one really, everyone's kind of looking at us, but there were a lot of people protesting. It was kind of a, an yeah. incredible event. Um, and while I was there... Um, because it was so chaotic, um, we decided to go to the court and um, and they opened the court for us, the federal court for us that night. Um, and it was probably by that point, it was about 9.30 or 10. How do you make uh, that happen? Um, I know I there's usually that, an emergency yeah. judge assigned uh, yes, all the time. Yeah. I think that honestly, I think um, Susan Church actually made some phone calls and they opened up the court, and there were two emergency judges that came in, one a magistrate judge, another federal district court judge, and they decided to sit on banc, um, and kind of, since it was such an extraordinary situation, yeah. um, Judge Barrow said, two heads are better than one, and so I'll just sit, I will we'll both sit on banc and figure out what to do. And so um, Matt Siegel from ACLU came in um, from his house, and he had a template that was being used across the country by the ACLU in these lawsuits. And sure enough, um, there was an argument that was held, and we were all doing research on our phones. And by 2.45 in the morning, we got the, the order that we had hoped to get. Um, who, who was there arguing uh, on the other side for the government? Well, there was actually the immigration, um, AUSA was there, but unfortunately, or I guess, interestingly, um, when Trump, um, when President, former President Trump enacted this, he hadn't really spoken to DOJ, and he hadn't really given them the heads up that this was going to go out. And so I think across the country, uh, much like in Boston, none of the AUSAs knew what to do. Like they had no guidance from yeah. DOJ how to respond. And so he really did, it was a really tricky time because he didn't know what to say because he was kind of surprised as well. 
So we were able to get actually that night the the broadest um, interpretation of the injunction of anywhere else in the country. And so throughout the next week, uh, where all of these cases were playing out, um, many um, people who were stranded in other parts of the world were coming in through Logan to try to get access to, to the country. What happened to the two professors? They ended up getting out of detention, so it was kind of tricky. So we were trying to get in there before, so it would still be a relevant case, you know. And so we, you know, we ended up filing the case in short order, and they ended up getting out of detention, thankfully. Um, but you know, we kind of argued to the judge that you know this is you know there's this is an act that that is that could be repeated um, and subject to you know the same kind of treatment, and so they that resonated with the judges, and they were able to give us this pretty broad. Uh, injunction at least for the week that it was that it was pending Um, so it was an extraordinary time and it just kind of showed I think you know the the power of the law and in kind of an unusual way too like on a Saturday evening you know to be able to file something against the president of the United States and having people come together from all walks of life people were at different you know events some people were at the Adams Ball some people were at birthday parties some people were just spending time at home. Some people were hiking, and everyone showed up at the court in different different stages of dress, should I say. No one appropriate for court, really. But, <laughs> right. But that's Well, okay. appropriate for court on a cold Saturday night, I suppose. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. The judges were, because they were wearing their robes, of course. So, yeah. But other than that. And now, remind me, what happened to the travel ban after that? Well, so what happened was we had a hearing in court in front of a different judge. It was reassigned. Um, and we didn't prevail on that secondary hearing, at least in Massachusetts. But it ended up getting litigated throughout the United States. And then um, President Trump kept changing it um, because the original one that was drafted was just so overly broad and discriminatory. And it was pretty easy to find that it was in violation of the Constitution. Eventually, it made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, but that, that, that was a different um, draft of the, the travel ban by that point. So, okay. but it was a really it was an it was an exciting and uh, sleep deprived week while, while it was pending in in court that week. Yeah, I'll, I'll always remember that. Just the little glimpse of it I got at the very beginning at the Adams Benefit. It, it mm-hmm. was. Uh, it, it's hopefully something that will never happen again during one of those so. events. Yeah. Um, in fact, I I ended up when I came home that evening. Of course, I hadn't eaten anything, you know, because we were going to the event and we had to immediately leave. Um, and as I was having my dinner at three o'clock in the morning, I thought to myself, "Oh my gosh, I just sued the president and like we and prevailed." And like, what's going to yeah. happen? Like, that's kind of a crazy situation. Well, and so. you really you really put into effect what the Boston Bar Foundation stands for, too. Absolutely. I mean, here that's you were providing yeah. free legal services to people who needed something immediately done. Uh, for, you know, uh, on an issue of civil rights. It, it was yeah, really that's exactly remarkable. right. It was it was um, a really crazy and a remarkable time, and I was just glad to get the phone call, you know, and be able to serve and go to the court that, that night. So what I'd like to do now is kind of back up. I mean, that was one extraordinary event I, I thought it would be good to focus on at the outset, but let's back up a little bit uh, and just learn a little bit about you and... Uh, why you became a lawyer, and how you got involved in pro bono work, uh, which is really your full-time job and has been mm-hmm. for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- why did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer? You know, that's a good question, because when I was growing up, I didn't really know any lawyers at all. I had no lawyers in my family and and didn't really grow up in a, a, a town that had many lawyers in it. Um, but my dad was really uh, was was a public servant, worked for the government um, as an engineer for his whole career. And both he and my mom were really committed to the community in terms of volunteering. My dad mostly with environmental issues and my mom did a lot of work with tutoring um, to, to folks in the community. So while I didn't have any exposure to lawyers per se, you know, I really I saw them as examples of giving back um, and the importance of giving back. And I also just love to read and to write. And so when I went to Dartmouth as an undergrad, um, I was a government major and was really focused on trying to do as much, um, you know, you know, pre-law as I could. Um, and um, I eventually, um, you know, ended up after a couple of years um, working after college, I, I went back to law school. Right. And uh, you went to Boston College Law School. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, That's right. Had a bit of a... Uh, a Jesuit uh, education, I suppose, which 
I don't know if Absolutely. that had any influence on you in, in terms of yeah. your thinking about what you wanted to do as a lawyer. It did, actually. I, you know, I specifically went to BC because of that, I think. And, the, the, and then when you go there, you basically are, you know, kind of, uh, it's instilled in you that, you know, you are, you know, it's important to give back. And, you know, we are really um, privileged to be lawyers. And that's part of what we do is to give back to the community and to give back to people who need the help. And so I had every intention of going into either the public sector or public interest when I graduated um, and was able to clerk for a couple of years. Um, but I was thinking also above my law school debt. And so I uh, tried to find um, a law firm where I would feel comfortable um, and where I could, you know, kind of have a nice mix of both doing pro bono, but also getting good experience doing commercial litigation. So you, you ended up at Mintz. Um, mm -hmm. Mintz, it used to be Mintz, Levin, Cohen, and Popio or something, I think. Yes, it was very I'm sure long. Glovsky's in there somewhere. Name. Yes, yeah. there's a bunch of names, exactly. Now we but, go by Mintz, but. Okay. And it, it's, uh, it, it's been around for a long time, and mm -hmm. it's a very well-known and well-respected uh, Boston-based law firm. I know there are other mm -hmm. offices outside of Boston, but I'll always think of it as a Boston law firm. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it had a track record for pro bono at the time you joined it, didn't it? It did, actually. And it, it actually goes back to the founding of the law firm back um, in the Depression. There were, you know, several um, uh, Jewish lawyers, actually, who, you know, felt ostracized by the white shoe kind of um, Christian um, uh, larger firms and decided to form their own firm. And all of them were really dedicated to giving back. And so... When I joined the firm many years later, uh, you know, they had a pretty vibrant, robust pro bono program, uh, a lot in the area of immigration and domestic violence. And so definitely resonated with me um, about when I went to choose which law firm I wanted to join. Um, it definitely having a robust pro bono program was a really important piece of the decision. Yeah, my, my memory is um, there's uh, the Boston Bar Association has an award called the Haskell Cohn Award. Mm -hmm. who I believe was one of the NAE partners at Mintz. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember, uh, I've attended that event um, several times. Uh, it's an award that's usually given, I think usually around June, um, mm -hmm. to a judge who reflects a real spirit of public service. Um, and um, I remember maybe the first time I went, I think, is it possible that Mr. Mintz was there? Was he still alive at the time? Yes, he always, he loved that event, actually. Yeah. He loved that event. He was very close with Haskell Cohn. I missed out on being, uh, practicing with Haskell Cohn by a couple of months, but he was a, okay. a Dartmouth alum, and uh, Mr. Mintz loved that event. So he just really loved it. And he, when he, a couple of years before he passed away, he said, listen, you know, if I end up, you know, passing away, which I will, I want you to make sure that this continues because this is a really important part of our history as a firm. Yeah, it really is. And I know the Boston Bar Association has always appreciated Mintz's support in that regard and, and for that very special uh, award and award ceremony as well. Okay, so you went to Mintz. What kind of work did you do when you got there? So when I got there, I was doing mostly commercial litigation, just a very general practice, something that you probably can't do now, um, just general commercial litigation, which I right. really loved because, I don't know, it just gave, you just learned about something new every day, and uh, I really loved it, and I was able to do a lot of pro bono work. I probably did about 200 hours of pro bono work every year. That is a lot. Um, yeah, on like homelessness and on gender violence and immigration primarily uh, during those years. Um, but the, I, I was there for about 10 years um, with that kind of mix, both as an associate and a partner. And then you became the pro bono partner at Mintz. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Was that a new position that was created? Yeah, so I ended up leaving the firm after 10 years to be the legal director at a nonprofit um, called the Victim Rights Law Center, okay. focused on sexual assault. Um, clients and so I was there for about three years but I kept in touch with people from Mintz because Mintz did a lot of pro bono work and I got a call from a couple of people at the firm saying that they were thinking about trying to do a better job at managing their pro bono program you know there's like three or four hundred cases going on at any given time That's and hundreds of people working yeah. on them so if you think about it it's like a you know a pretty big section of the firm how big was and the firm at the time um, I'm trying to think. There were probably, I'm trying to think, when I came back to the firm in 2007, 
Um, I think we had like four different offices um, in, throughout the country and probably 350, 400 lawyers, something like that. And 300 um, of them were doing pro four, bono? Well, it was staff too, like 300, oh, okay. like 300 staff and pro- project analysts and pro, you know, pro paralegals. Um, and so um, they, I think they wanted to like make it not just a volunteer, like our pro bono committee did a great job, you know, at managing it, but they kind of wanted someone to really manage it instead. So they, I, they invited me to come back as a partner and uh, I became the full-time pro bono partner in the litigation section. And I was, um, oversaw the pro bono work of the firm um, in all the offices and became the chair of the pro bono committee too. And you actually also have litigated some of the pro bono cases as well. That's right. Yeah. Part of it was that when I came back, it was actually really interesting. They said, we really want you to focus on pro bono cases and we want you to um, mentor junior associates in the litigation section and give them really good professional development opportunities. So typically I have between five and 15 cases that I work on um, at any given time. And those cases can range from like having one associate work with me to like, you know, a really large team of like 10 people or 15 people working on a case. Are there still hundreds of people at Mints every year that are doing something uh, along the program? Yeah, yeah I, I, the, it's funny, like, you know, we have about three or 400 matters going on. And I know just with, just even just give an example of we had a, put out a call for volunteers about a year ago to help with Afghanistan refugees. And I was thinking that we probably wouldn't get that many people. It's the summer, everyone's on vacation, people are really busy. And just for that one project alone, um, within 24 hours, we had 110 people at the firm raise their hand to help, which was actually not just attorneys. It was like people in the marketing department. And so about 10% of the entire staff firm-wide volunteered to help on these cases. So So let's talk about that a little bit. I I think, um, you know, I'm interested in how different law firms handle pro bono. I, I don't know... I don't think I know of other firms that have a lawyer serving as the full-time pro bono lawyer and chair of the pro bono practice, though maybe there are, maybe maybe other firms do that. What's your understanding or experience with that? I would say like, I came in 2007 into this role, and at the time it was relatively new. Um, I would say that most of the top 200 firms have someone kind of managing, sometimes not a lawyer, sometimes not a practicing lawyer. I would say that people who are in the par- pro bono partner level role, there's probably a couple of dozen of us globally, like, you know, in other countries too. So there aren't that many people who are playing that same role, but there are a lot of people who are doing something, you know, in pro bono. Sure. Um, yeah, and making my, sure the firm is managed, yeah. My experience, uh, which is very limited because it's basically the few law firms I've worked for, um, there are pro bono partners, but they're also expected to uh, practice law uh, mm-hmm. that is producing, re- generating revenue for the firm. That's uh, right. Yeah, you're, that's right. You're not in that role. You're, you're 100% uh, of your time yeah. is pro bono. One issue that comes up frequently with pro bono programs is how do you incentivize lawyers to take on pro bono cases? You know, uh, typically, historically, at least, law firms measured... Uh, compensation based on a, mm-hmm. a lawyer's productivity, and the f- primary focus of that has always been on how much revenue are you generating for the firm. But I know most lo- law firms, uh, certainly I think probably all the large law firms, take pro bono into account in some way uh, in, and give people credit for that in a, determining mm-hmm. their compensation. How does it work in Mints, and, and how do you get 100 lawyers to raise their hand when one matter comes in the door? Yeah, that's really, you know, it's interesting. I, um, I Sometimes I don't, I'm really shocked myself when people are raising their hands, but I think that for if you are um, finding really good and interesting projects and you are making sure that people are well supervised and you're working with a legal services partner that's going to help mentor people, people feel much more comfortable about raising their hands. And that Afghanistan example is a good one of, people reading the front page of the newspaper and reaching out and saying like, listen, I really want to get involved in the Afghanistan crisis. What can we do? And I think that that particular um, 
incentive has come about over the last maybe four or five years. It's it's kind of like one crisis after another. And so trying to like, you know, you know, respond to every single thing that comes through the front page of the newspaper is a little challenging. Yeah. yeah the most recent, I guess, would be the reproductive rights issue. Um, and that's something that, you know, we're trying to find, we've been trying to find some good opportunities for people. In terms of incentivizing people too, like we are definitely, um, pe- a lot of firms have like caps on their pro bono time or, yeah. or have mandatory pro bono. We don't have either of those. So, um, and I can see the benefit of doing both. Like some people want to have a, a mandatory pro bono number so that they can, you know, to the outside world, they can say 100% of their people participated. And then others have caps for that very reason you mentioned, because they have to incentivize. So ours is, we can do unlimited, but you have to reach a certain threshold in order for it all to count for your bonus purposes. Okay. But uh, there are several people I know right now who have 300 hours of pro bono time and they'll get a bonus based on all of those hours, you know, yeah. because they're quite busy. Well, and it sounds like, sure, there's a financial incentive to, up to a point in doing pro mm-hmm. bono. Um, and you don't want to have, you know, if you don't have that, then what you really have is a disincentive from doing pro bono because mm-hmm. it takes time mm-hmm. away from the work you do get paid for. But right. um, it sounds like there's also just a lot of internal um, motivation that people respond to a need that they want to be part of the solution for. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think um, having done hiring at the firm, I think a lot of people gravitate towards the firm. I know I did because of the mission of doing pro bono and being able to do um, kind of any project you want to do. Like you could come up with a good, as long as it meets the standards, you know, being able to do that. And so, you know, I think that's also an incentive, you know, to get people in the door who really care about yeah. Um, the, you know, and I really try to work hard on getting people to work, um, to, to, to do pro bono work right away when they start at the firm. Because I feel like if you start right away while you're a law student, you'll continue on throughout your career. That makes a lot of sense. And, and it also provides good training, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. A, a good example of that is I had a, um, a restraining order case in district court in August, and I asked a second-year associate to come with me. And he did all the cross-examination for the witnesses at this oh, hearing, great. which was an amazing experience. You know, yeah. I didn't realize till after that he had never done it before. <laughs> so it was a little, he, he was very confident and did a great job. And then we prevailed, but then the defendant appealed. And then I went to, I reached out to like a sixth year who really wanted to get some appellate experience. And so now I'm supervising her on that project. It's the Isn't same project, great? same client, but I know that she really wanted to get some appellate experience. It's really a win-win for the law firms and and for everybody else. I mean, it's you're you're doing something that's really good and necessary and important, um, and at the same time, you're helping to develop new lawyers. and And I know there's a yeah. lot of effort um, in some courts, at least, to uh, emphasize the importance of getting experience for younger lawyers because they don't get into court the way at least my generation did when we were very young. You know, we were trying cases in our first, second, third year. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen anymore unless you, unless you get a pro bono case that's suitable. You, you know, you also have to make sure you're not throwing a first-year associate into the most important pro bono case of the firm. Um, yeah. but, um, but it's a great way for people to get training. No, it definitely is. And, you know, I was thinking of that reminded me of a case I w- had been working on um, with a, a several associates at the firm with the ACLU. And when it came time to argue the the opposition to the motion to dismiss, you know, we had our six year associate argue on, on behalf of Mintz. Mm-hmm. We had several partners on the case, but he did all the work and, you know, he wouldn't have gotten that opportunity probably in one of his commercial cases. And so he did an amazing job, you know. So, um, yeah, I think you're not necessarily, given the way things are right now with clients and client demands and um, other other constraints, it's really hard to get that court experience. And so that's, you know, pro, using pro bono for that um, is really helpful too. Okay. Was that the Brito case you were just talking about? Actually, it's not. That is a case okay. that I'm working on um, with the ACLU on um, because the government has not um, done anything with the humanitarian parole cases that I mentioned from Afghanistan. The government has really either delayed or denied the adjudication of those. And so we filed a case last August 
um, with the ACLU um, that was the first case to um, try to force the government to move along those cases more quickly because many of our clients are, we've had several clients, unfortunately, who have perished, um, have been murdered by the Taliban um, while their cases are pending. And yeah. so it's a real urgent case. So how, how does working with an organization like the ACLU work? How does the partnering uh, between a private law firm and an organization like that uh, work? You know, it really depends. Like, I think it, it it kind of, over time, you know, you get to know the different organizations. And I would say the ACLU is an amazing organization to work with because they're true co-counsel in the matter. And so, um, and over time, like we've worked on several cases with them, you know, there's just a level of respect and, um, you know, we kind of know how to divvy up the, the matters. Um, with newer uh, co-counsels, it's a little bit kind of, you kind of have to figure it out, you know, as yeah. you go along. You know, some people want to get, you know, it depends on, like, who's going to have the final say, you know. With the ACLU, it's much more collaborative, but you kind of have to work that all out through a co-counsel agreement beforehand so that you don't end up getting in a situation where you're, uh, you know, in conflict later on. One case you did handle with the ACLU was the Brito case. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I thank you for sending me the citation mm -hmm. to the decision. I read the decision, I, and it also went up to the First Circuit. You mm -hmm. won it, you're, you and your colleagues, and the ACLU, uh, won it uh, at both levels. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about that case. I think it was a very important case, um, and uh, tell us what it was yeah, about. It was a really, yeah, it was a really important case because what we had found was that um, detainees who are detained by ICE in immigration contexts um, had a very difficult time getting out of detention, and many of them, um, almost all of them, had no counsel and no access to counsel. And so um, what happened was, in, if you're in detention and you're basically are, are kind of untethered from a lawyer or untethered from your community, too, um, you're, you are put before an immigration court and put, go, go through a bond hearing with, 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 with the court, and you kind of have to handle it on your own. Uh, and so previously, before this case, the detainee who is unrepresented was required to bear the burden of proof as to not being a flight risk or a danger to the community in order to be released. And so we argued um, in our case that um, the, the flip should be, the burden of proof should, should shift right. to the government, much like it is in the criminal context when you're, when the government should have to prove that. This was, and, uh, so just to set it up again, a little more context. This is all based on a statute, but the statute was silent on how the who has the burden of proof. Yes, uh, right? yes. And it was really interesting because what we found was that this whole thing went sideways in a, a case about 22 years ago or so. And since then, immigration courts were just relying on this case that went sideways um, and, and had this strange burden of proof. And yeah. so we were trying to right-size it and have it kind of makes sense, honestly. Have the detainee, have the government prove that, that, the, that the detainee was a flight risk or a danger to the community in front of an immigration court. So it really was kind of extraordinary because we were in front of Judge Saras, yes. and after the ruling, it had an immediate impact in the Boston Immigration Court. In fact, um, we, I think the ruling came down on a Friday, and then on Monday, the immigration court had a training for everyone um, in the court system, and everything flipped on Monday. And we also wow. were able to rally about 100 pro bono lawyers to represent all the, 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 the detainees throughout New England to try to go and make an argument that they, sh they too should be released from detention. Yeah, I mean, I, I just can't imagine what it was like for the detainee. How long would somebody potentially be in detention? Waiting but, uh, for this bond hearing or even after the bond yeah. hearing? Yeah. Well, the people, the plaintiffs of in the case, like someone was in detention for like six months, having not done anything, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and some of them had the, 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 um, the strike against them, perhaps, was that they had a notice to appear in immigration court, but the notice to appear said to show up on a Saturday night, you know, or something oh, like that, like very yeah. like due process considerations. And so that was really troubling for... Um, us and for Judge Saras and then the First Circuit too. So and I think we'll you see what happens. But I think you had three named plaintiffs, and and when you read their stories, I mean, you obviously found three really great named plaintiffs because um, this was a class action, 
and mm -hmm. uh, they were the class representatives. But when you read their stories, how could anyone possibly imagine that they were flight risk? They were in the country for years. They were working. Years, they had families. Right. Good yes. citizens. Um, well, not good non-citizens, I guess. But yeah, right. um, just uh, extraordinary that anybody would uh, assume they could be a, f a flight risk and then try to imagine how how does somebody, especially somebody that doesn't have counsel, but how does anybody prove the negative? Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. And so it was really the stories and the families that we got to know. It was just an extraordinary situation, and we were lucky that... Um, you know, Judge Saris, um, you know, ruled the way that she did, and right. uh, and 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 then the First Circuit upheld the burden shifting, which was which was terrific as well. So we'll see what happens with that. Is case. that issue in the Supreme Court? Are you, it's you not said we'll in the see Supreme what Court. We're okay. we're kind of like waiting to see what the government does. Um, there's been some circuits that have ruled different ways, so we'll just see what happens. Hopefully, it won't go up to the Supreme Court. You mentioned work that you and others are doing in uh, women's reproductive rights, and mm -hmm. I assume that's work that uh, really got started after the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs. Can you talk a little bit about the work there? Yeah, so that actually, it's been interesting. Um, I would say our health lawyers have been the most um, involved in this work because a lot of the issues do arise in, in the health space. Um, our litigators have done some research, but the health lawyers are doing a lot of um, work um, with different national organizations. Um, and so we're really pleased to be able to partner with some organizations like Lawyers for, um, for Good Government and Planned Parenthood and the Center for Reproductive Rights. Um, and we've also joined several alliances, like there's an alliance out in California that we've been aligned with to try to get cases and help. Um, and then in Massachusetts recently, um, the AG's office just um, um, initiated a hotline that anyone who um, wants to ask questions about reproductive rights in Massachusetts could access. And there are five law firms that signed up to help, and we're one of those law firms. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. You know, it, you have to be um, nimble, don't you? Uh, I think that story of what happened at the Adams benefit shows a certain degree of nimbleness, but also yeah. you get the Dobbs decision. You you knew it was coming uh, before yeah. it actually came down, but uh, still we you did. Had but to it's act interesting quickly. too. Yeah, and you want to make sure. I think the hard part is you want to manage expectations because I think everyone wants to help, but you also want to make sure you get opportunities that are um, substantive and you're working with good organizations too which is not always the case you know not every organization right. is going to be a good partner so yeah you do have to be nimble and there's a little bit of crisis fatigue going on too in the pro bono community um those that run our programs you yeah, know like every day there's something new and uh and during the prior administration there was something new every week that you were trying to respond to so but it's exciting, too. You can make a difference. So that's really what it's all about. Well, and, and you and your firm and, and other, many other pro bono lawyers mm -hmm. in Boston and elsewhere really do make a difference. Well, you're also engaged uh, with different committees and commissions. One of them is the Access to Justice Commission. How did you get involved in that, and what does it do? So I got involved in the Access to Justice Commission through my work on the SJC's pro bono committee. Um, and I was really trying to um, uh, work on, on that committee, on the pro bono committee, and trying to help the Access to Justice Commission kind of um, focus on pro bono as a way of addressing the access to justice crisis. Um, and the commission itself generally um, really focuses on um, the premise that, uh, you know, the court system has developed over the last, I don't know, centuries, right? Um, and it was developed by lawyers and judges. And it was, it, was, it was developed with the thought in mind that a judge would be sitting on the bench and there would be a plaintiff and a defendant, both of whom have lawyers. But the reality um, over the last 40 years or so, right, is that in many courts, in Massachusetts and elsewhere, the family court, housing court, consumer debt, a majority, and sometimes even up to like 99% of the people don't have any lawyer. And right. so the court, it's a very difficult situation for a judge to oversee that kind of proceeding because no one knows what they're doing. Um, and some of the things they're dealing with are so complex. When you're dealing with an eviction and you're dealing with 
like eviction law in Massachusetts, it's really difficult. And so a lot of what we focused on as a commission was really looking at what are the barriers to entry in the court system and what could we do to address those? Yeah. So how did you do that? Well, I'll give you one example. So I, since I mentioned I was focusing on pro bono, um, I um, about, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12 years ago, I was sitting in my office and my colleague, Martha Coster, who um, is a retired partner and she was about to retire, came to see me and she said, you know, Sue, I really uh, want to retire, but I want to continue practicing law, but I want to do um, pro bono work like, you know, full time and I want to really give back to the community. And she said, I think others may want to do that, too. And so I said to her, well, that's great. Let's see if we can start a program and see if we can get some senior lawyers and judges engaged. And so we spent about a year um, really kind of testing that theory and looking at different programs throughout the country and trying to figure out a way to make it work. And so we piloted a program a year later, Martha being one of the the pilot uh, attorneys. Yeah. And, uh, and, and since then, uh, close to maybe 200 lawyers and judges have given back 10 to 20 hours a week of time doing pro bono work at different organizations. Yeah, I saw that. That's a, it, it looks like an excellent program. How has it worked out? I mean, are, are, is a lot of good work being done? Yeah, it's really amazing, actually. I, you know, we started this program and had kind of low expectations because we were told by many people that really wouldn't work and, you know, people may not, they may get, you know, not, not, they wouldn't get excited about the work. But we, we found was that people generally who gravitated towards it have loved it. And Martha, for example, has continued. She has done immigration work for PEAR, the Political Asylum Immigration Representation Project. And she's continued doing that for 10 years. And she works like 20 or 30 hours a week doing that ca- those cases. That's so it's amazing. pretty amazing. And she's yeah. not unusual. Most people do continue with either their partner agency or work on another issue. And they've really made a huge difference in um, working in legal aid organizations, working in the court system, working for nonprofits, and using a lot of them using the skills that they were using as you know a commercial litigator or a real estate lawyer or a nonprofit lawyer, and um, really dedicating their time to that. But secondarily, which is not something that I had really anticipated, we've tried to develop this community of lawyers. And you know, I think when you retire, you're kind of looking for continue to have a community. And this has provided a community for a lot of retired and retiring lawyers and judges to continue to work and share, share their experiences. And uh, we meet once a, once a month and share experiences and learn about issues relating to access to justice and low-income people throughout Massachusetts and nationally. It's such a great idea and such a great opportunity for people uh, who do want to keep helping using their law degree uh, and their experience to help people after they retire. So kudos to you and, and the others for doing that. You you also were on an SJC committee. I'm forgetting exactly the name of the committee that you were on. So I was on, it was the Standing Committee on Pro Bono Legal Services right, for right. many years. And, um, and that committee um, it really focuses on incentivizing lawyers to do um, pro bono work in the community. Um, and so looking at things like, you know, the Adams Award and other Adams, um, the Adams Award that they give out every year for extraordinary pro bono work. Um, and also, um, you know, thinking about what well, one thing we thought about was how to um, expand on the awards that were given out. And so one thing we did was um, give out awards to law students as well to incentivize them. And their stories are really incredible. Like, you know, they each give speeches at the at the Adams Award um, ceremony and the law student typically is just in- extraordinary yeah. and will continue to do that for, for throughout their lives, I think. That's great. Now, um, you know, one thing we, we haven't touched on, and we probably should mention it, even though you and I are both litigators, we always think of pro bono work as litigation, but there's a lot mm-hmm. of non-litigation pro bono work out there. Can you uh, give us some examples of some of the things that you've seen at Mints or elsewhere? Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, there's some more of the kind of traditional, like, transactional work. So people working on behalf of nonprofits and serving as outside general counsel or working on, like, mergers of two nonprofits. And then there's also, over the last decades, there, there's been a, an uptick in, um, particularly at the Lawyers for Civil Rights or Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights across the country, working with low-income entrepreneurs 
and kind of working with low-income entrepreneurs who are working on um, like companies. You know, you're helping people start for-profit companies, but you're also helping them because they're in um, areas of the community that need help and they're working on issues that um, maybe they're socially minded or maybe they're just trying to start a company and they need the help. Um, and then also we've had a, real, a lot of success in using our transactional lawyers on um, some of the um, kind of either lobbying or research projects. And I'll mention two. So like one is, you know, we've done a lot of work in Massachusetts on gender violence and working mm-hmm. on um, trying to um, change laws with respect to um, restraining order provisions or human trafficking provisions. And then um, in terms of our research, you know, we're working on a project for an international nonprofit um, on uh, trying to find the best laws uh, around the world for addressing domestic violence. And they're, they're advocates in Thailand, and so they're trying to propose, you know, changes to Thailand's laws um, that would relate to gender violence. And that's not something that a litigator necessarily needs to do. So we have a, a project that involves some litigators, but a lot of transactional lawyers too. And it's a great way for people to get involved um, on really interesting projects that could really make a difference systemically too. One thing um, I'm curious about, and I assume you have your finger on the pulse of this, if there's any pulse left in it, about um, I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago, and I'm sure before and after that to some extent, there was a movement to try to develop a right to counsel in civil cases. Mm-hmm. You know, they call it the mm-hmm. civil Gideon. You know, mm-hmm. I know you know, um, Gideon versus Wainwright was the Supreme Court case that established that there was a right to counsel uh, in criminal cases for people who mm-hmm. could not afford their own lawyer. And so there was a movement uh, that was actually seemed to be gaining some momentum back around 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ABA was uh, part of that movement. Um, mm-hmm. They had uh, lawyers, I think uh, David Boyes and Ted Olson were chairing it, if I recall, mm-hmm. pretty mm-hmm. well-known lawyers. And uh, they were going around the country having hearings um, to try to develop a record to establish why there should be a, a right to counsel in civil cases. Nothing ever, nothing, uh, nothing global, I guess, ever came out of that. Maybe there were some projects that developed. I know that um, around the same time, might have been before or after, the Massachusetts courts developed a program for the housing court for people mm-hmm. to have a lawyer for a day when they were having their eviction hearing. Mm-hmm. So somebody could come in, help them for one day, and then when the case was over, they could, uh, they no longer would have an attorney-client relationship if they if they had one at all, and would, uh, but it, they would hopefully be very helpful to those people, bef- uh, who were seeking to prevent their evictions. So, what happened? I, I, is there still any life left in the movement to have a civil right to counsel, or is has that ship sailed? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I, as you know, the BBA had a committee uh, that focused on this issue in 2007, I think, or 2008, okay. I think. And the focus areas were on immigration and housing and family court and came up with some um, pilot programs. And right. I think it was tricky because at the time funding wasn't available to do that. But they did serve as a basis for later on. Um, and so, for example, in the housing context, the people that worked on that pilot are people that continued working on that, Jean Terrell, Russell Angler, and others. And then um, during the COVID crisis, um, there was a right to counsel, actually, for several years, funded by Governor Baker. And, um, you know, uh, that pilot sort of served as a, or the pilot concept served as a basis for that. So it's really interesting. So there, you're right, there isn't this global um, framework but I will say that people are still very much working on this project. Um, and I would say that there are different ways to get at the issue. One would be through litigation. So I worked on a case that went up to the SJC with legal aid, and we tried to get, and we were successful at getting a right to counsel in a guardianship case. So that's one way through case law. 
And then another way is through um, like funding through the, you know, the, the, through, through the government, through the governor or the legislature. That's another way. Um, and I think, um, you know, the, you know, there are just, I think there are just different template models throughout the country. Um, so for example, in um, New York, there is a right to counsel for housing and also a right to counsel in immigration proceedings too. So it's kind of interesting. So a little pilot's going on, but you're right. It hasn't really taken off um, in terms of the way one had hoped to. A lot of that does relate to funding and not yeah. necessarily relate to the need because the need is so right. great. You know, so it's really, okay. I think it's tricky, but it's still going on, but it's, uh, but it hasn't made the big national splash that one would hope that it would. Yeah, yeah, it seemed to sort of fizzle out, but fortunately, there's still a lot of good people doing pro bono work to mm -hmm. meet at least some of that need. Right, um, right. And programs like the Housing Court Lawyer for the Day program. And that's still um, going strong, too. That's still good, going strong. Good. Yeah. Well, let me, I, a, a couple of other things I want to cover with you just briefly. Um, you know, I looked at your bio, and uh, you've won like two dozen uh, or more recognitions and awards uh, for your, the work you've done, which is truly extraordinary. In 2020, you won the Ralph D. Gantz Award for Extraordinary Leadership and Pro Bono Services. You were the inaugural recipient of that award, which, as I understand it, is given out by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. And for those who don't know, Ralph Gantz was the Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court for a number of years. He died suddenly and unexpectedly uh, uh, a few years ago and was a real loss to the legal community and the court system. You worked really closely with him uh, for a number of years, I think, on access to justice and, uh, and pro bono, the pro bono committee. Um, can you just say a few words about his legacy, um, Chief Justice Ralph Gantz's legacy. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I was really fortunate to work with him and so many others. Like, it's a pretty amazing um, group, a community of access to justice champions in Massachusetts. We're really lucky to be in Massachusetts with so many people. Um, and I guess the biggest legacy is that, you know, the work of the commission is still going strong under the leadership, the leadership now of um, Justice Georges and um, now Mary Jean Benner Brown, both of them co-chairing it. And so I think that's the biggest legacy, I would say, because people are, con are, are continuing to work on these issues, these really important issues of access. Um, and I, it would have been really a shame for everything to just come to a halt. But luckily, there's a whole community of people who really care about these issues and I, ro I rotated off two of the commission a year or so ago, a year and a half ago, um, but it's still going strong, and I'm really proud of the fact that it's still going really strong. What do you see as the need right now um, for any kind of systemic advancement of access to justice in the court system? And that, that could be an hour-long conversation. Exactly. I'm right. going to give you so, a couple yeah. minutes. Okay. I'll, <laughs> but what are I'll some of the needs? I'll try to be brief. Sure. I mean, I think you touched upon one is getting attorney access, whether it be a full-time legal aid attorney or a pro bono attorney, getting a right to an access to a lawyer in some context, whether it's a lawyer for a day program or full representation is critical. Um, I think recognizing that not everyone can have a lawyer, I would say that... Um, Making the courts user-friendly for self-represented litigants is really an, an, is imperative, um, and, and that includes, um, you know, simplifying forms. You know, it sounds kind of very simple, but the fact that in some courts you could go to one court in one area and have one form and go to another court and have another form for doing the very same thing, simplifying the forms could really, um, I think, catapult um, access to justice because you could have someone who's not even a lawyer help someone fill out a simplified form. Sure. Um, and so that's another aspect. The, uh, I think the other things to mention are language access as well is really critical. If you don't understand the language, um, no matter how simple the form is, um, you're not going to be able to um, really understand what's going on. And so making sure that um, that you know that, that that people can actually understand um, what's happening by by having language access is really critical too. Another thing we haven't touched on is that um, pro bono work is not limited to private practice lawyers. Uh, I know that 
a number of corporations have their legal departments uh, very interested. There are lawyers in their legal departments who are very interested in doing pro bono work. And you've spoken with some of them, I think. Mm -hmm. What, what do you mm -hmm. see happening within uh, corporate legal departments? That's actually a real um, interesting trend over the last, I'd say, 10 to 15 years is the real interest in in-house counsel in trying to do pro bono work. Many of them came from firms that had a structure in place. And so it's a, a little bit daunting, I think, sometimes for in-house counsel to actually set up a, 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 you know, a bespoke program for all of their attorneys. Sure. Um, so a lot of them are relying on their law firms. And so um, we just did a program last week with a client of ours. Um, and it was a mix of Mintz lawyers and this client's lawyers and trying to make it easy for them to kind of plug in and be trained and, you know, at least give them the, the structure that, that's missing, I think, is really important. And so um, I think the more we can simplify things and provide kind of bite-sized opportunities for in-house counsel, the better off we'll be. And I would also give a shout out in, in D.C., for example, a lot of government lawyers are doing pro bono work, too. So it's really interesting to think about, you know, the life, the either, you know, starting out as a law student, what you can do. And then whatever you decide, whatever you yeah. go into, whether it's private practice or the government or in-house counsel, trying to plug in in some ways and then providing for opportunities when you're retired, too. So it's sort of a whole spectrum of, of, of opportunity, I think. You know, one thing I... I came to realize uh, several years ago was that you can't always count on somebody just to hand you a pro bono case. You know, you could say, I want to do pro bono. Oh, here's a case. Um, sometimes you actually have to take the initiative and go either find the case or connect to the organization that has the need, um, and they'll find a case for you or they'll have a case ready for you. Um, for the attorney who, or law student, I suppose, but mostly attorneys, who listen to this podcast, um, what advice do you have about how they can get involved in pro bono? Yeah, I would say start with your bar association or your law school, because law schools have now have people who are in charge of pro bono opportunities, which is most of them do. Yeah. And then bar associations are a terrific way to get plugged in. I mean, both the Boston Bar and the Mass Bar have amazing opportunities for people to at least, even if they're not, the, the bar association isn't doing the project, they can at least send you to the right place and find a resource. And then I would just say it would be really important to network with people like me to find out like what, what are the good opportunities in your community because they are not all equal. Like some of them are better than others at doing pro bono work and you want to have a good experience and you want to get the right training and mentorship too because the worst thing you could do is take on something that you don't know what you're doing and have a bad experience. And you're, obviously your client is not going to um, benefit from that either. So, um, so I would try those three things and, um, and I, I would just encourage everyone to try to, to give back. I mean, we, we have this amazing... Um, I don't know, the uh, um, profession in that not all professions have it of giving back to the community and where it's a real privilege to be a lawyer and there are just many things that you can do to really save someone's life or, or help them get out of poverty or um, address their civil rights violations and we could all do that because we have been trained to do that. So, And I can tell you as a someone who's a little more advanced in my career than you are um, that... Um, when I look back now on the career that I've had, the things I remember most and am most proud of are the pro bono cases I did. And I didn't do a ton of them, you know, but I did some. And those are the cases that stand out that I um, am really grateful I had the opportunity to work on more than any others. So Yeah, um, I agree. Like, those are the cases that, you know, they, they're, they're just incredible opportunities but also the ones that keep you up at night too right yeah. so you know it's kind of like yeah. you know they're relying on you to really really solve some really difficult problems for them so but it's all it's all it's it's, it's all for the good it is all for the good sue thank you very much this has been a really uh, i've enjoyed this conversation i uh, admire uh, as you can tell the work you and your colleagues at mint do 
Um, I, I think I, I know the firm must be very proud of it, and uh, I'm just really grateful that there are lawyers like you and law firms like Mintz that are out there meeting the need that so desperately exists in so many quarters. So thank you. Uh, you're thank a great role you. model. Oh, thank you, Don. Nice to nice to speak with you. It's good to speak with you. Uh, take care. This has been an episode of Higher Callings. Your host is Donald Federico. Music is provided by Fancy Mountain, and our logo was designed by Matt Boudreau. The associate producer is Brian Federico. Higher Callings is a production of Federico Media, LLC.